Hello, everybody. My name is Dr. Herbie Bell, and this is our inaugural, our first podcast for something we call Sober Conversations, where we talk about the ins and outs of living in recovery, the idea of how a sober lifestyle can be a transformational process and an absolute blast. And who better to kick off this first podcast for Sober Conversations Someone I consider to be a dear friend and mentor, Dr. Chris Harrison. So let me give you the lowdown on this guy and who he is uh, so we can unleash the power of his mind and heart into the podcastosphere. Did I make that up? So here's Chris. Chris is a licensed clinical psychologist. He maintains private psychotherapy practice in Redwood City, California, and is an adjunct faculty member at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He's the former clinical director of, of the Sequoia Center, an alcohol and drug addiction treatment facility in Redwood City. And Dr. Harrison has also worked at Stanford University School of Medicine, where he helped to develop and deliver a smoking cessation protocol for a National Cancer Institute-funded study on nicotine dependence in adolescence. This is too much, Chris. How much stuff we got here? In addition to his interest in addiction research and treatment, now here's my fave part. Dr. Harrison is passionate about helping others to explore and implement practical methods to to cultivate peace and wellness in daily life. How bitchin' is that? All right, so here's here's the real deal that I want to say about Chris. Chris has uh, what I would say is the most integrated hemispheres, brain hemispheres of anybody I know, coupled with a heart space. And I tell him this, I kid him, I say that, this thing that he's got is so big that he means he needs and carries a man-sized purse that is indeed uh, the size of a small car. You know those new Fiats. Uh, honestly, this is Chris. Hey, welcome, Doctor Chris Harrison. Thank you, Harvey. It's great to be here. It's good to see you here. So, what I'd like to do to kick this first uh, interview or this first interaction off is just ask you some questions so that we can get sort of to where we're coming from. And as you and I uh, participate or have participated through the years, it's kind of an organic process. So let's just see what happens, okay? Sounds good. Let's do it. So uh, let's start with me asking you, Chris, what's the buzz? What is it that you're stoked about with respect to working in addiction treatment? And what needs to happen to that treatment kind of in, in a broad stroke, in your opinion. I love, the, I love that you're referring to it as the buzz. What a wonderful word to use when we're talking about addiction recovery. I think one of the most important things for us to realize is that when we're talking about addiction treatments what are, and recovery, I love to focus with people on what are we recovering, what's being recovered. And using the word buzz while we're using the word recovery really is a way of conceptualizing that's what we're after. We're recovering this natural buzz. Every substance that is used is used to achieve an altered state of mind, a certain high, a way of feeling really good in the moment. And Stanislav Grof, who's one of my favorite transpersonal theorists, he's a psychiatrist, has written in a book called Psychology of the Future that the use of spirits for alcoholics is a misdirected search for spirit itself. Beautiful. So using the term buzz really gets to the heart of the matter. We're looking to, to recover this natural vitality that we have as human beings that we've had for centuries and millennia 
that gets overwrought with stress, gets hidden beneath the daily minutiae of modern life. So we're looking to really get back to that heart-centered way of living a, of a life based in vitality, based in energy and joy and wellness and health. So that's the heart of the matter. And then there are multiple different avenues to take in achieving that kind of what I call and we call in this business of health and addiction treatment and recovery. Uh, what do we call it? What do we call it? Well, this is the buzz. And, you know, I asked Chris ahead of time, and he's laughing right now because he's naked. He likes to be interviewed while he's naked. That's right. It's the only way to be interviewed. <laughs> and I don't know why he's laughing. I should be the one laughing. Just kidding, Chris. No, this guy is an absolute uh, uh, stud for a 13-year-old. And <laughs> he is uh, right uh, where I want to go with this, and that is I asked him if we could change this from sober conversations to thrive jive. You know, to really get into what happens when people move through that threshold of stopping the behavior that was really killing them to find out what's available to live in this lifestyle where everything is available to them in a natural way so that we can bring the gifts we were born to bring via creativity and everything else that comes along with our inimitable uh, uniqueness, our mind-body-spiritness. Uh, so what is happening in, in traditional treatment circles um, versus what you sort of sense as some grassroots uh, emergence uh, that, that needs to be applied to the conventional infrastructure? Does that make sense to you? It does, yeah. I think what's happening in traditional treatment circles is medicine. And, and medicine from the perspective of quote-unquote Western medicine is really compartmentalized. So we kind of split the human being into these various parts, sometimes by body region. If you think about going to see, having a problem with your heart, then you go and see a cardiologist. If you have a problem with your foot, you go to see a podiatrist. If you have a problem with addiction, you go into a treatment center that really focuses on addiction in the realm of addiction medicine. So a lot of that has to do with really rebalancing neurochemistry and getting the the mind, if you will, back into some kind of homeostatic balance so an individual can then move forward and, and live in a more effective way. And that's not all bad. I'm a dialectical thinker by nature, and I don't think that that necessarily is bad. It becomes bad, or more uh, a better word for me is ineffective, when we collapse a dialectic or we collapse compartmentalization uh, into being the whole truth and the only thing that's needed. So unfortunately, I think what's happening in traditional addiction treatment, we're, focused, we're essentializing neurochemical rebalancing at the expense of, uh, of a more vitalistic or holistic treatment of the mind, body, and spirit. And there are a lot of treatment centers that are doing the very best that they can in, in the current environment that we have, which is based in insurance reimbursement and all of this stuff. So... In the current environment that we're in, the current healthcare environment we're in, I think a lot of treatment centers are doing their very best and are limited by having to do certain types of work in order to get reimbursed by insurance companies. And I know what you and I are passionate about is breaking out of this traditional model and bringing in some freshness, bringing in the idea of getting people out and moving regularly and 
getting people to really pay attention mindfully to what they're putting into their bodies. So what do we put into our bodies, and then what are we getting out of our bodies through exercise? And then bringing that in with the psychological health and well-being, and sometimes medication, sometimes psychiatry, but really breaking open the paradigm of traditional medicine and moving into a balanced approach where we take seriously what comes in, what goes out, and then how we think about both. So that's, those are some of the limitations, I think, that, to the traditional model and where you and I are coming in and saying, hey, let's really shake this up and, and, and get people well for the long term in a sustained way, not a 30-day treatment center. That's another part. I'll go on for just another moment. I have so many clients. Uh, I, I specialize in treating young adults and their families who are, who are addicted to chemicals. And I have so many clients who will go to a 30-day rehab, and they do great. They're sober for 30 days. And I'd say to the families after a relapse happens and they wind up in my office, well, of course they were sober for 30 days. They were in an environment where there, was no, there were no drugs available, and every single moment of every single day was structured for them. So in a manner of speaking, it's not all that hard to be sober for 30 days in a residential program. What happens afterwards? And that's where traditional treatments really fall down, in my opinion, if they don't have a full continuum of care. 30 days of residential treatment, and then it's like, okay, you're, you're back, you should be good. And then these individuals are put back into their normal living environments, same stressors, same kind of uh, interactions with the same environments, and we expect them to sustain change that was achieved in 30 days when they may have 10 or 15, 20 or 30 years of the old behavior. So we're really talking about building wellness in the current environments in, where, in which people live because... I think to a certain extent anybody can get sober in a residential program for 30 days. Can they stay sober for the next 30 years? And that's where we're falling down as treatment professionals, and I include myself in that. Well, I, I, let's riff on that because, as you know, my practice is centered around honoring and trying to apply what we call ancestral health tenets and ancestral mm-hmm. health practices. And what we mean by this is to apply what we know about how our species came through the tens and thousands of years to deliver this beautiful genetic blueprint that we have now, and that requires moving regularly and giving ourselves the nutrition that will deliver this good brain chemical soup that a recovering person needs. And that is given sort of second tier Mm -hmm. uh, or maybe even lip service in these conventional treatment centers. And I think they do a very good job. But in order to give somebody a skill set for that to happen one day at a time for a lifetime is something different altogether. So now what I really respect about you, Chris, is your uh, your uh, academian kind of uh, flair and paying attention to things like randomized controlled trial studies. What's out there scientifically so that we can apply it to our lives, and I think that that is the gold standard for people to pay attention to, but sometimes common sense is not so common. So do we need randomized controlled trials for people to understand that if they're not moving regularly and if they're not eating well regularly, then they are really setting themselves up uh, for relapse? Well, you know, I'm not intimately familiar with nutrition research and, and things like that and research and exercise physiology. But if I were to familiarize myself with that, I'm sure that there is plenty of randomized control trials and plenty of evidence that suggests, yeah, eating well and moving well are essential nutrients to thriving as a human being. 
So I believe that research is probably out there and we could find it if we wanted to. And then beyond that, like you're saying, just from simply from a common sense perspective that we need to move well, we need to eat well in order to be well. That's just, as you and I have talked about that, that, that is just essential wisdom. And operating from that perspective, once it's, once it's operationalized in a meaningful way, I think becomes exciting for people who are trying to get and stay sober. And as you've shared with me, we have this, what is it, for, how many years of, of the genome perfecting itself to allow for this natural vitality that we have. And that's based in moving and eating well. So absolutely, I don't know that, yeah, I don't know that we need to go out there and recruit a ton more evidence for this. Living our lives is evidence enough. And as I said, I think in the scientific literature, there already is plenty of evidence. That gets back to me, for me, to the idea of compartmentalization. And the way that funding is set up from the National Institute of Health on down at the federal level uh, on down, we funding is based in compartmentalized research specializations. So I know, and when I've been in research institutions before, there's competition among departments to get the same dollars. So I have to show you why this part is so much more important than the other parts of the body or the other parts of the mind. And it, it, that becomes insanity for me. And that's you know, reduction to absurdity. And that's what we're fighting against. So we're trying to put back together, in a manner of speaking, really, the human body. We're trying to put the body and mind back together because it's been so divided from the, the research paradigm that is an expression of the worldview of, quote-unquote, again, Western medicine. And those are the big ideas that, that we're up against in trying to return to vitality. I was listening to... A news program over the weekend, and it was talking about salt, fat, and sugar, and how the processed food industry has just infiltrated every single household in America. Talking about addiction, many of us, the vast majority of us, I would say, are addicted to salt, fat, and sugar in the food that we eat. And how did that happen? That happened through big business and through, again, compartmentalized kind of research. So these are all ideas that, that are important for us to consider when we're, for me, this is all running in the background of my mind when I'm sitting with individuals who are addicted and trying to figure out, first of all, we need to develop this idea, this worldview of holism to get individuals to understand that we are all interdependent. We rely on one another, and that begins with interdependently, intradependence within our own systems, our body, mind, spirit, integrating, becoming, recognizing the essential wholeness of, of our beings in this world and then moving forward into health and wellness. Well, you know, that lights up every, fi every fiber of my being because I think that's where we, um, we absolutely resonate with this idea that treatment centers should begin from this place of teaching people how to access their own, as we say, neurotransmitter cascade, their own brain chemicals so that they can take this out in, into their lifestyle practice. And so uh, that uh, begets or, or kind of leads to this next idea that it is the culture that, that is producing this, this uh, addict who is coming at us in increasing numbers, at alarming numbers, and our, uh, let's call it recidivism or just relapse rate, rates are about the same, whether somebody gets treatment at the Salvation Army or at some very expensive treatment center. And so t tell me a little bit about what you attribute to the massive uptick 
in prescription drug addiction and the deadly effects on the culture. What's going on? Why is, why is it increasing? Specifically with prescription drug addiction? Yeah, what would you say? I think that we, we have a good thing and we then take a good thing and say if it's good here, it's good everywhere. So I think that may be part of it. I mean, to, for me to sit here and say I've got the keys to understanding of why we have such an incredible epidemic of opiate addiction would be overly presumptuous, of course. So I'll share with you some of my opinions. I think that we have, uh, again, opiates are a good thing in the sense that we've never, in the course of human history and the history of medicine, had a substance or a medication that's been so effective in helping to alleviate pain and suffering for individuals who are experiencing pain. Physiological pain, of course, is what opiates are designed for. When we have a substance that's so, a medication, again, I'll use the word medication because I like to differentiate between medications and drugs. An opiate used therapeutically as prescribed by a physician is a medication. When that medication is then overused and abused by an individual, then it's being used as a drug. So we have this really powerful substance that can be used as a medication or it can be used as a drug. And when we have an abundance of production, because opiates are produced at massive, massive rates, because they became so popular in medicine for the treatment of pain, because they're so effective as a medication. So we have an incredible oversupply of a medication that happens to be incredibly powerful at reducing pain and suffering. So then we have a population of people who are in mental pain and mental suffering, So a medication that was designed to treat physical suffering can also alleviate mental or emotional suffering. Boy, doesn't that sound familiar. Yeah. So then, of course, there's an overabundance of supply. There's an incredible power and efficacy in reducing pain and suffering. So then we have individuals who figure that out. I can't tell you how many people I've seen get a prescription after oral surgery for an opiate, get a prescription because they have a sore back for an opiate, All of a sudden, they notice not only is their physiological pain gone, but boy, there's a sense of euphoria too. So their mental anguish, their mental and emotional suffering is taken care of as well. So then they take the prescription maybe two or three days longer than they were, uh, than it was longer for than it was prescribed. Then they start increasing the dose because, of course, we have the notion of tolerance. And then all of a sudden, they find themselves in a drug and alcohol rehab center three, four, five, ten years later. Let me intervene here and ask you if you think this is true. Additionally, people are eating the standard American diet, which causes remarkable inflammation and causes all kinds of what we call adaptive lifestyle uh, symptomatology, Mm -hmm. including I ache all the time, I've got gastrointestinal problems, but it's not directly related to what they think they're eating that's good for them. Can can you comment on that? Would you say that that is uh, on the mark? I think it's absolutely on the mark, and I think drawing a through line between opiate addiction, so using opiates as drugs as opposed to medications, and the type of food that we put in our bodies, and this gets back to what I was speaking about a little earlier with the news report that I heard. There was a big report, I don't, I, I don't know if it was in New York Times Magazine or Times, Time Magazine or something on Friday, because this broke all over internet news, and then a news program I was listening to was talking about the salt, sugar, fat uh, combination. That This is high, high science that all of the processed food giants have uh, discovered long ago. 
So the notion of addiction to substances, I think, that's why I like, that's why I like to call it addiction to substances. What is food? Food is a substance. And we each, I think, have our own way of relating to food, something that we put into our body every single day, in, in a way that has some flavor, oftentimes, not always, of, of compulsivity or of obsession. And what we know from, and, and the food uh, researchers know this for sure, those, the scientists, the really top-level scientists that work at these gigantic corporations that get us hooked to Doritos and Twizzlers and all this kind of food, they know exactly what they're doing. They're putting together a combination of chemicals that lights up the limbic system, creates a sense of euphoria, sound familiar, as you said, same thing that's happening with opiate addiction or any drug addiction, and it feels good. So we have this principle of we're going to always move toward pleasure and away from pain. That's just part of being a living being, I think, not just a human being, but a living being generally. We'll move toward pleasure and away from pain. So we have this commercial agribusiness that has designed our food chain in a laboratory to get us to feel good. And the better we feel, the more we're going to want and the more we're going to eat. And the unfortunate side effects and consequences of this, as you're saying, are the tremendous inflammation that happens throughout the body, the maintenance and the creation of illness and disease that is coming from the food that we're eating. I mean, there's an absolute insanity to to all of this. And this is something, again, that traditional research, or I'm sorry, traditional treatment centers aren't really focusing on. There's some, and there's some that, again, do a beautiful job, and there are... I don't know about millions, but thousands and thousands of people dedicating their lives to this work in traditional treatment centers. So the last thing, and I was one of them for a while, the last thing I want to do is bash them. And at the same time, I want to uphold this this model of excellence that we can do better than what we're doing. So yeah, focusing on nutrition is parallel to uh, nutrition and and just what we eat and put into our bodies in general and drink uh, is is right on parallel track with what we're talking about with so, recovery. So to, to sort of reiterate then, uh, people need to pause and they need to take a look at how they're taking a look at their lives in residential treatment, maybe intensive outpatient treatment. Uh, concurrently, they need to learn how to generate these good chemicals by themselves by moving well and by eating well yeah. and taking that out into an infrastructure so that they can continue the support in aftercare, so to speak. I like to use the example, which is a little bit radical, but people that have end-stage kidney disease and need dialysis wouldn't think of getting 90 days of dialysis and then going out into the culture and seeing how they fare. It is a deadly proposition, which then reminds me of somebody like, uh, is it Mindy McCready, who died recently? She's the... Uh, celebrity country right. and western that's right I singer. Think so. yeah and so what is that about that somebody gets good initial care and we see this story again and again where people go out into the culture and they can't live well, isn't that just the metaphor for what we're saying here it is and one of the things that we do know from from good solid addiction science research is that one of the top predictors for a relapse is environment and if we don't assist individuals in learning how to respond to their environment in new ways, then we know that the environment is going to overtake any kind of initial change that's happening. If we think about recovery, 
as a process of transformation, as a really, for me, a process of rediscovery of that natural vitality that we all have inherent to us, that's part of the universe. It's, we are simply energy in motion, right? That's the, the paradigm I operate from. So recovery is a rediscovery of that transformative power that created life itself, whatever we want to call that. So if we think about the, trans- the transformative nature of recovery as a seed that's planted in soil, it needs a tremendous amount of love and care. And having that seed exposed to incredibly harsh conditions shortly after it's been sowed, then we know that that seed is not going to sprout and it's not going to thrive. So we need to help individuals to understand that they're going to return to harsh environments, the harsh environments from which they came. And we have to learn uh, how to help these individuals and these families and communities to protect that early growth just as we would protect a, a seed that's sown in an environment that's harsh. How do we take care of that seed so it can flourish in a, so it can flourish in a harsh environment? That's what we're talking about with with addiction research or addiction treatment. And one of the things I think that's so important to recognize is that we need to get individuals to believe and families and communities to believe that this transformation is possible. We need to develop a durability and belief in change from the very get-go. And I think taking this this broad-based, holistic, if you will, approach and providing people with examples of how this has worked for others and really getting people to tap into their own belief in change is what we have to do. This makes my heart sing, this self-regulating, self-healing aspect that all of us have, returning to the garden, so to speak. I love your seed metaphor. A seed requires sunshine, nutrition, and water, Mm -hmm. these simple common sense things. And we're saying that a human being requires these vital nutrients of moving well, of eating well, and of thinking well. And it's a synergistic approach, and no one area can compensate for the other. Mm -hmm. And so I just love what you're saying. And this this, uh, man purse kind of overflow, uh, super... uh, mind, body, spirit, intelligence you have, you've intuited my next question. And so you've, you've talked about this transformation, uh, this, this doorway into a vibrant lifestyle, as opposed to this other thing that you hear people talking about that are in recovery. Well, I've been struggling with alcoholism for 20 years, and I've been struggling in the war on drugs and the struggle. And you're saying it doesn't have to be that way. One of the reasons that I am so deeply passionate about doing this work is that the only thing that matches the struggle of addiction is the power of recovery. So again, if we're talking about energy, energy is just energy. It's neutral in a way. Energy becomes value-laden when it's run through human consciousness and and conceptual thinking. So addiction, and I'm a recovering alcoholic, the time that I spent toiling and struggling, thinking that I was living the best I could by partying every night and having a job where I could sleep really late into the, into the midday and then party again the next night, and that was wellness. That was joy. That was fun. I thought that was fun for a long time. <laughs> and then slowly but surely, I woke up to the fact that, wow, I'm miserable. And in fact, 
I'm covering up all sorts of struggle and difficulty with substances. Mm -hmm. So then I struggled, as so many people who get sober struggle. I struggled for years before I finally got and stayed sober so far today. Sustained sobriety for me has been for a number of years now, thankfully. So that struggle to figure out how to be well was energy that was being poured into... uh, into my experience, and and the energy took the form of struggle. Once I crossed over that threshold into sobriety, it's the same energy. You can hear the passion in my voice. So the energy that was struggle before has become now passion and compassion to help myself and others to get and stay sober and to experience the incredible joy and the incredible vitality that I thought alcohol was providing with me, was providing for me before. So addiction and the transformative power of recovery is like, for me, like nothing else. It's the greatest opportunity for us to really awaken to the incredible power that, that is present in living, in being human, and actually allowing ourselves to live this open, vulnerable, beautiful life. So the energy that goes into addiction then is the energy that goes into recovery, and it is the energy of life. That is, you know, I, I'm losing it here because uh, I'm, I'm remembering as a young man uh, the civil rights movement, and, and Tommy Smith would say, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, and I'm mm-hmm. here, and you say, say it loud, I'm sober and I'm proud. Yeah. But what I want to tell the, the listening audience is that I've done the calculations about your uh, your tenure in sobriety, and it means that you started uh, drinking and smoking cigarettes and hitting on chicks when you were about two. <laughs> I, I, this little toddler, I love that. And by the way, I was I, actually twelve. That is actually yeah. why I started drinking and using. I was twelve years old. Yeah, uh, and and that's true for for most of us. And I, as you know, am a recovering uh, person as well. So that's what happens. And with, there's a direct correlation with people who decide to pick up uh, substances uh, at that early uh, age and uh, developing this brain disorder and and disease of uh, addiction. So where do you see it all going? Um, And by the way, how are you doing for time? Do you have uh, have a few more minutes? Okay. Yeah, I'm good. Uh, Are you optimistic? And what measures can can help uh, more of us snap out of this sort of herd mentality that goes on. Let's sequester these addicts, go take care of themselves, and then mm-hmm. come on back and get your you-know-what you together. What, what can we do to kind of bust that whole thing? It's a wonderful question and something I spend some time thinking about, and it's one of the reasons I'm so grateful for our relationship and the opportunity to get our message out to more people. The key to breaking through this chain of... Uh, addiction and this chain of wanting to sequester or, you know, remove from our view the people that are struggling with addiction is compassion. The key is compassion. It's very simple to recognize and very simple to say and exceptionally difficult to put into action. If we can each recognize that we suffer, if we can each recognize that we struggle as human beings, then we can find within ourselves the ability to have compassion for all human beings, all beings everywhere that suffer and struggle. And when we can do that, we can come to an understanding that addiction is is but 
an extreme form of suffering, perhaps the quintessent, most quintessential form of suffering that there is. And if and when we collectively as a culture of human beings who are struggling together can open our hearts wide enough and open our minds wide enough to see that in the addict I see myself, in the addict I see my own pain, my own suffer, suffering, my own struggle, that's what gives me hope. I think the more we can, as human beings, collectively together own and recognize struggle, then we can own and recognize compassion. And then we can help each and every person who is suffering and struggling with addiction or whatever else they're suffering and struggling with to change. And we can only change, I can only change when you change. You can only change when I change. And the more we can get that message out that we are interdependent beings changing together and we're changing from suffering and struggle to health and wellness, then we blow the doors open. And we don't say, oh, we need to get away from you. You have a problem. We say, no, come closer. You have a problem. So that's what gives me hope and inspiration. That's why I get out of bed every day with a a full heart and a tremendous amount of energy to go out and help people to heal. Because in helping others to heal, I continue my own healing. So opportunity abounds. And I don't lose hope because it doesn't even make sense for me to, to question any of this. This is life. Well, the heart in the room here is just unbelievable, and I, I so thank you for going to that transformational piece in such an eloquent way, and I want to to ask you, so then uh, we've got these statistics that people throw around that there are 60 million substance and behavior abuse misusers, addicts in the United States, and so this is a veritable army of of potentiality, of mm-hmm. kinetic energy, of creativity That's that right. can be recruited through this uh, portal of transformation that you're talking about. And that's what we're talking about here at Sober Conversations when you say that's the conversation we want to have, not get your shit together and then get back into the assembly line. I agree c- completely, abs- absolutely. I believe and have believed, and the reason I've chosen to specialize in the, the, the reason I chose to specialize in addiction treatment is that, it, as we were talking about earlier, it has the most potential for growth. Individuals only change, generally speaking, when they feel like they have to change. People don't wake up and say, "I'm going to change today." Change sounds like a great idea. I think I want to do that today. No, we change because we have a sense or a belief that we have to change. So addiction is a beautiful portal in because people either have, either choose to change or they choose to die. And a lot of times, unfortunately, people only seek out treatment when they've recognized how close they are to death. So they say, okay, I'd, I'd like to live. What do I need to do to do that? That's how people show up in my office sometimes. Maybe, unfortunately, not that clearly, but that's basically what's going on. So if we take this into a global mindset, a global picture for cultural change, The planet is dying. We are dying. We're polluting the planet. We've known this. This is the great wisdom of of indigenous populations that have been singing these messages since before the Industrial Revolution. If you poison the water you drink, then your life is limited in its in its potential and its and its uh, longevity. If you poison the air that you breathe, then you're poisoning the entire ecosystem that supports life itself. So addiction is this portal into the kind of transformational change that needs to happen on a uh, on the level of collective consciousness. If we're to survive as a planet, a lot of the 
the problems that we have across the world are based in addiction. And we know this. Look at oil addiction. Look at our addiction to money and high finance. I mean, all of the major problems that we face as people on this planet in the 21st century, for me, very, very dramatically have their roots in an addiction mindset and an addicted mindset. So, yeah, this is what we're talking about. Just um, really touching me that way. I think of Gabor Mate's work with his In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, this this longing, this starving for this kind of integration, this kind of holism that we we indeed are. So I am mindful of the time, and you've got to get back to your busy practice. And I want to finish uh, by saying that I really respect treatment professionals who walk the talk, and I see you very definitely as, as one of them, and I hold you in highest regard that way. How do you see your life modeling what you offer in the world? In other words, how is your work a metaphor for meaning and being in the world? Now, you've already said that, but personally, can you drop it down into your, your own walk? Yeah, one of the things that we haven't spoken about that we'll have to speak about the next time we get together is mindfulness and mindfulness practice and how does transformational change take root in the day-to-day mundane functions of life. And for me, the, the primary focus of my life, in a manner of speaking, is mindfulness practice, is allowing myself to enter into this moment and this moment and this moment, each and every moment of each day, as it passes, to enter into that with as much awareness as I can. And there are some moments when I do that very well. And there are some moments where I completely forget to bring my full attention and my full beingness into the moment. But that's where it all begins. So I walk the talk by having a dedicated mindfulness practice and by really doing my very best to strip away worries and concerns about the future, to strip away any concerns or hang-ups I have in the past so I may come with as much heart presence as I can to this moment here and now. And in having that as the central focus of my waking life and perhaps my sleeping life, I don't know how mindfulness and sleep is an interesting concept, that's how I walk the talk. And so that takes the form of being very aware of what I put into my body and how I eat I'm very aware of getting the essential nutrient of exercise and being sure that I do that regularly. I'm very aware of ensuring I sit in a meditation practice every single day, not, even, not, not forever, but that I sit for, for me at least 20 minutes a day every day. And that's how I feed myself so I can then be there in the most open possible way for other people. And speaking of sleep, of course, you pay attention to the healing power of your sleep. Yeah, it's funny. In saying waking life there, the other part is sleeping life. And yeah, the essential nutrient of sleep, that's another essential nutrient that we have that many people are deprived of, sadly. So yeah, it's taking care of myself uh, through through how I move, moving well, eating well, sleeping well, thinking well, and being well. And the being well piece for me really has its foundation in mindfulness, mindfulness practice. That is so beautiful. And just for today, just in case we're never, we're not going to live forever. I love that. Mm -hmm. No one gets out alive. I love the expression, live long and drop dead. Yeah, I love that too. (laughs) So here we are, Chris. Um, Thank you. You are indeed a Spartan and a gentleman. And I'll just go ahead and wrap it up and say you're a total stud. 
Thanks for being here. I can't thank you enough for your time and cutting-edge, fantastic work that you're doing in the world. But before we go, tell everyone how they can get in touch with you. I can be reached through, mainly through, best, best ways through my website, which is www.drchristopherharrison.com. And that's D-R with no punctuation, drchristopherharrison.com. And Christopher Harrison is just spelled intuitively, like you would think. Uh, any any other uh, information you want to give about uh, contact? The website's good? The website's good, yeah. And the last thing that I want to say is that I invite each and every one of you who are listening to this to take a moment for yourselves today, to follow your breath and bring yourself into this lived moment and allow yourself to experience this natural vitality that pulsates in us, with us, through us, so you may enjoy the moment's of your life as they happen. Thank you, Dr. Chris Harrison. Chills up and down my spine. You are truly a real teacher. Uh, This is Sober Conversations signing off for now, but we'll be back because all great things start with a conversation. I'm Dr. Herbie Bell of Recovery Healthcare in Redwood City, California, where we teach people to move well, eat well, and think well. We'll see you next time.